Welcome to Charity Chat, I'm your host Samuel Davies. In this episode we speak with Rob Stewart, Media Relations Specialist at Ambitious PR. We speak about Rob's background as a journalist and his tips and advice for how charities can make the most of opportunities to raise awareness of their work when speaking with the media. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for business to sales fundraise quick and simple, saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Pop to workforgood.co.uk to learn more and book a free demo. So without further ado, here is our guest, Rob Stewart, speaking to us about media training tips. I'm delighted to be joined by Rob Stewart, media relations specialist who is spearheading the media training for Bristol-based Ambitious PR. Thanks for having me, Sam. It's a, it's a, an honour and a privilege to be here, and I'll um I'm looking forward to flying the flag for ambitious PR and also telling your listeners a little, giving them a bit of an insight into sort of what this media training likes all about. Fantastic. Well, maybe if we can start by asking you about you, Rob. What's your background? What have you been? Uh, what's been your journey to okay, where you well, are today? Well, uh, you know what? I think this is going to give away a lot about my sort of professional background because it's. Um, I'm one of the, I'm what you'd call a, a poacher turned gamekeeper in that I was, I've come into the um, PR industry from a newspaper background. I spent about 10 years in regional newspapers, and most notably four years at the Hull Daily Mail, which were four of the happiest years of my life on the new. I was everything from education correspondent to court correspondent, crime, news desk, etc., did a bit of sub-editing, a bit of sport. It was absolutely brilliant. In a way, it was the sort of end of the halcyon days of regional papers as well. Really, really busy newsroom. Fantastic. Made some friends there back in the mid-90s that remain friends to this day as well. Um, so uh, that was the highlight of my sort of regional career. Um, 18 months travelling the world with all the money that I'd earned at the Hull Daily Mail. And then I came back, lived in the northeast of England where I worked the uh, Newcastle Chronicle group for a couple of years. Then I took the big plunge um, to go freelance. And that's when sort of things started happening in a, re- in a really, really quick way. I, started, got, I was lucky enough to get a job as a as the football report for the Daily Telegraph up in the northeast of England. Oh, wow. Okay. So I covered Newcastle United, Sunderland, Middlesbrough. Uh, also got to cover cricket and rugby. Um that yeah, was brilliant. And obviously working with the Daily Telegraph opened up a lot of doors. Um, and it was interesting as well because um, I look back on it really fondly. Great people to work with at the Telegraph. Great covering the football. It was like a labour of love. Um, but in my first couple of years, first few years of working for the Telegraph, I used to get paid on a, I was a basically a freelancer and they'd pay mm. me for whatever I produced. If I came up with a good story, they'd use it and they'd pay me well for it. And that is what actually got me to raise my game in terms of journalism, because I knew that I had to keep prodding and probing 
for good for good lines out of people to get to to develop good stories. That mm-hmm. wasn't difficult because we were often dealing with people like Kevin Keegan, Roy Keane, Gareth Southgate. So you knew that you were going to get something good. But I sort of um, that's when my a sharp my journalistic senses were sharpened because I knew that I had to push and push and push for good stories. So so anyway, I look back really fondly on that time. Um, all good things have got to come to an end. Um, I stopped working with the Telegraph because I felt as though it was time to get what you'd call a proper job. And I thought, what could I do with those skills? And that's when I thought the charity sector is for me. Well, had you experienced any kind of charity work in the past prior to joining it as a kind of a contributing to it in kind of work terms? Had you benefited from a charity? Had you been supporting charities in your earlier life at all? Well, you know what? That's a great question, Sam, because I had, and that's what got helped me get the job at the Alzheimer's Society. I, um, because we've got cystic fibrosis in our family. One of our children's got cystic fibrosis. Mm. I was not surprisingly drawn to supporting the Cystic Fibrosis Trust, A, because they gave us a lot of help uh, in those sort of early difficult days, and also mm. because I wanted to give something back, to not, not only to raise funds for research, but also raise awareness of cystic fibrosis as well. Because um, when our son was born with cystic fibrosis, it was one of those things I'd heard about, but I didn't really have a clue what it actually meant. I knew that people mm. used to raise funds for Cystic Fibrosis Trust. So anyway, that's what I really put my heart and soul into, not only raising lots of money for Cystic Fibrosis Trust, with everything like you know doing the Great North Run for CF Trust and things oh, well, like yeah. that, the usual stuff that you do in the Northeast. Yeah. Um, but then I went the extra mile, literally, and I did the London Marathon with the Cystic Fibrosis Trust in, I think it was 2015, and I've got to say it's one of the greatest days of my life. Running in front of 750,000 people on the streets yeah. of London, it felt as though they were all there to support me. It's really weird, but what a great experience. And... The hardest bit was actually raising the three thousand quid to get to um, wow, that's amazing, which I needed it? to do for for to to get a place on the cystic fibrosis team. Yeah, and anyway, that's when my my media skills came into play, and I used everything I had and all the contacts I had to help me uh, generate a bit of publicity to help raise awareness of the charity and help me get over that sort of three thousand pound that three k finishing line. Wow, that's amazing! What a, what a fantastic achievement to raise so much. And how did you how did you actually do it? Any any tips for anyone out there that might be listening, thinking, "How am I going to raise sponsorship for my Great North Run yeah. or marathon or whatever?" Uh, you know what, Sam? It was basically use your closest, your your best contacts, use your friends, family, and get them to help you as much as possible. And I've got to say, I was really grateful, and always will be grateful to. Um, the people in the media departments, uh, respectively, Newcastle United, Sunderland and Middlesbrough, because they all helped me with specially donated signed football signed oh, shirts, etc., which I raffled off. Nice. Um, but that is, apart from that, it was a really hard slog. Um, like having to, we, we ran a spring fair, we, we ran some a, a, a spring fair type thing where people could buy and sell things. And it was the hardest way to earn money I could imagine. And I wouldn't. It's made me made me. Um, and also, you know what, Sam, as well, it's made me realise, especially doing the London Marathon and all the ra- money that I raised, just how mm. how difficult it is for the charity people in the charity sector to raise money. It's a really, really, t- it's it's tough. Mm. So, so anyway, but yeah, the, I'm, 
use your contacts basically would be my tip on in on in terms of fundraising and also enlist the support of a um friendly PR person or journalist who do the um hard yards in terms of um getting your publicity not only in the traditional media like local papers mm-hmm. but also get your social media stuff up and running as well So we're we're talking today. Well, we're talking about lots of things, but the, I suppose one of the main things we're talking about is media training. What is media training, Rob, and and why is it important for charities? It's, uh, I'll always remember the day when Dinah Keel, who was the um, Yorkshire and uh, Cumbria, Yorkshire Northeastern Cumbria manager, regional manager for the Alzheimer's Society media team. I always remember she doing the interview, having an interview with her, and her putting a trusting me that I could deliver the goods for the Alzheimer's site in the northeast of England. Mm. You know, because it was a bit of a leap of faith because I had a journalist, I was a journalist and I didn't, apart from the CF Trust stuff, I didn't really have any any proper professional credentials, but she placed her trust in me. She was a great boss to work with. Um, So I got a job in the regional team looking after the northeast of England and Cumbria People were great to work with, and I found that the my media skills came into play because I brought to them an insight into how journalists work and what journalists need. And also, crucially, I was always more than happy, apart from calling in favours from old friends, I was always happy to pick up the phone to a journalist and persuade them, yeah, to work with them to get to create content that would help us get the Alzheimer's Society and dementia in the headlines. What kind of things would persuade a member of the press to to report on your charity when you were talking to them? Well, I suppose it would be like um, the ability to say, yes, we're launching a campaign and we've got a person with dementia and or carer who will actually speak to you about their... Right, who'll give you okay. an insight into how, it, into, into how dementia is affecting their lives. Mm. You know, they weren't the journalists, um, and that was certainly the case at the Newcastle Chronicle, who were great. Um, but they yeah, they'd be they 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 needed human interest stories to bring this bring the dementia related, the Alzheimer's Society campaigns to life. So anyway, it was I think what I enjoyed about it was based was working with journalists and people with dementia. And my colleagues at the Alzheimer's site, the the frontline care staff, you know, the ones that were dealing with people with dementia on a mm. daily basis, we'd mm. work together to create to to break down the barriers between media and uh, the and and yeah, break down barriers between pe- the media and people who might be a little bit suspicious about how the media operates because there's all these silly sort of misconceptions about how journalists operate etc you know right they're ranked alongside estate agents and solicitors for for be, being uh ne'er-do-wells or whatever you want to call them um so i guess is that is that the same kind of i suppose people have that concern sometimes if they're talking to the media that they might be misquoted yeah, or yeah, yeah. you know that, that they might be given questions to to make them say something they don't want to say, things like that. Is that the kind of thing? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was that. So you know, I think that's where I, I worked with I worked with the frontline staff and people with dementia just to to reassure them hmm. and give them confidence that they could work with journalists and do it in a do it in a way that be 
great for the overall cause of dementia. You know, what what they were doing wasn't going to find a, a cure for dementia, but it was going to raise the raise awareness, help people understand what dementia is all about. It's not just about forgetting people's names, etc. Hmm. And also, it would help promote fundraising as well and bring in that vital dosh that has been needed to finance the research, which has led to an amazing breakthrough this week up from from the um, people at University College London. And so when you when you were calling up the kind of the members of the press to um, pitch the the cause um, of Alzheimer's society, is the secret to that success coming down to the fact that you've got something that is an interesting story, ultimately, something that isn't, you know, is, is maybe more rare to read something in a on a blog or on a news site or on a newspaper where it's actually got kind of quotes from people who are lived with lived experience than it is to get the standard kind of press release that you might see a charity send out with maybe a quote from their member of staff or something like that. Is that, is that yeah, the kind yeah, of, um, yeah. trying to find something a bit different? Yeah. Yeah. Bringing that human side to people, bringing, bringing forward that human side. And also this is, it's going back about 10 years when I first started working for the Alzheimer's site, Alzheimer's site, there was still an amazing taboo, a social stigma attached to dementia mm. um, in that people were sort of ashamed of it. And it was absolutely nothing to be ashamed about. And that is one of the things that that is one of the areas where I feel as though the Alzheimer's site made a lot has made a lot of progress over the 10, last 10 or 15 years or something, mm. uh, because of their, they've had a very, very positive attitude towards media relations. Um so yeah, I had some great years up at the up at, up in the um, northeast of England and Cumbria. Met some brilliant people, really inspiring people as well, uh, and also working with some amazing people on the charity side of things as well. People that went the extra mile, the frontline staff that went the extra mile to look to provide people with people with dementia and their carers with with the support that they really needed. Um, so yeah, I worked on the regional side. For three years and then can i carry on yeah please yeah okay then my partner got a job with the um she worked for the bbc she got a job in bristol so we had to up sticks and leave my beloved northeast which i'd fallen in love with living in whitley bay and we up sticks and relocated to bristol so uh bristol already had a regional media uh, the outside society already had a really good regional media person down here so there's no chance of me getting in here. So thankfully, a job came up within the head office of the Alzheimer's Society in London. And that's where I spent four amazing years where I saw the um, Alzheimer's Society make amazing steps, make, make amazing strides forward in terms of raising awareness of dementia and also bringing closer that day when a cure will be find, found for dementia as well. Oh, what a career and and so you've you've worked both sides of the fence so to speak rob but maybe if we can um kind of talk about media training specifically what what do we mean by media training and why is that important especially for charities do you think i felt very honored that i was entrusted with my colleague robbie lane with developing media training for in the when i was part of the regional team and that was basically to give staff frontline staff and people with, people with dementia and their carers, a little bit of a know-how in terms of how to deal with the media. So mm. that media training could be everything from um, a basic introduction to media, as in, this is 
Oh, these are the newspapers on your patch. These are how radio op radio journalists operate. This is how TV people operate. Um, giving a bit of an insight into what they can expect from a journalist. But also the key thing as well when on the regional side was the myth-busting angle of it. The fact that we had to we reassured people that journalists would generally be on their side. So, so it's a little bit about the awareness raising and changing people's understand, improving understanding of, of of dementia. But also, it was about making sure that we were all singing from the same proverbial hymn sheet as well. And they were, we were together as a team, and we were all gunning for the same um, ultimate goals as well, which was to raise money, raise awareness make sure that there will be one day a cure for, for dementia so so the media what is yeah so in the answer to your question what is media training it's a wide-ranging thing it can be anything from the basic here's how the media works to the higher end stuff which i got involved with at the um when it was part of the national team it's like what to do when there's a bit of a crisis as well so you know right, can, okay. or, or or how to make the most of a live tv interview as well which is often the thing that more people feel more daunting than ever. Kind of put on the spot at the London Marathon or something like that, where someone approaches you with a camera and a mic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, Sam. Yeah, yeah. So you know, it's a wide range, a wide range of thing. But what we always tried to do with the media training is that made sure it wasn't a one size fits all thing. Hmm. When we would, it's like the way we we deal with journalists. We'd do it be a process of negotiation, so you can make sure that things are tailor made to make sure that they fit the bill for for whatever campaign it is or whatever cause it is or whatever crisis communication it is. I suppose the types of worries that people have, I suppose, are being, you know, maybe, I, I guess one of the worries that I have, I don't know if this is a typical thing or not, but one of the worries that I have is in that scenario where I might be at a charity event because I, I work and volunteer for charities. If I'm in a charity event and then uh, a camera crew suddenly appears, I want to make the most of the opportunity and, and talk to them about why I'm there um, and the, the cause. But then I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to say the wrong thing and uh, and then kind of waste the opportunity. Are there kind of standard steps or standard kind of points that charities should be thinking about in those kind of scenarios? Um, yeah, I think I think that because this because of social media and these cameras everywhere and li and live stuff, um, I think um, it just shows that it's worth investing in training as well. Just so your volunteers and your staff back themselves to raise the game to th and they back themselves about their ability to think on their feet mm -hmm. when a camera is thrust in their face. So and. Um, and I think that is, you know, it's good to be prepared by having done a little bit of even elementary elementary training, which would involve things like um, having a few key messages that you're ready to resort to. And so, and this is a really good one to 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 remember, I think, because um, often people panic when they're, a camera's thrust in their face. And by the way, I, I was once, I had a camera thrust in my face at the Great North Run by Jonathan Edwards for the BBC. Actually. Oh, really? Oh, wow. And I was terrible, but I still did the, <laughs> I still did the job of raising awareness of the Cystic Fibrosis Trust. And that mm. made me think, if I can do it, anyone can do it. But Sam, I think it's about 
if you got tra- if you got a little bit of training, it will boost your confidence in your ability to communicate with clarity, think on your feet, and also you'll remember when push comes to shove that whatever happens, the answer is more important than the question. Mm. So don't matter what the journalist asks you, if you can bear that in mind, you'll, interesting. You'll, you'll, you'll be fine. So I guess kind of without being um, kind of too manipulative in those situations, but having a kind of an idea in your head about what it is you want to say to the public about your cause as a kind of, a, and then if even if a question comes in, it doesn't really ask that answer that you you can then at least you can kind of try and move that into um kind of merge that into the answer yeah 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 definitely you know what um matt hancock has brought this to life recently and it uh, brought this to the um has highlighted this recently actually on his um trip oh yeah uh, down the jungle yeah 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 he (laughs) talked about he was boasting about his ability to not answer questions Oh gosh, yeah, yeah, and he was talking about he's talking about the, you know in Whitehall they clearly call call it pivoting, mm. and it's basically about deflecting questions if you don't if you're not comfortable with them. So you only talk about what you want to talk about. You only say what you want to say, and also this sort of thing. It's we also call it a bridging technique. It's like um, easy to remember it as um, something that's as simple as A B C because it is all about acknowledging the question as in that's a good question mm-hmm. using a bridging this is get this is all about getting you out of trouble so it's right. about acknowledging the question as in that's a very good question or that's a very interesting point and then using the 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 b which is a critical thing and that helps you get away in get helps you move into an area that you're comfortable talking about and that b can is a bridge is the bridging word and that can be that's a very good question, but, mm-hmm, and then mm-hmm. you, you, that that represents a changing direction of the conversation, and you can right. go on to do something like the uh, uh, politicians say all the time. That's a very good question, but what I'm here to talk about today, or what the public t- t- care about, is so and so. So you know, I think anyone can use those techniques to get themselves back into an area that they're comfortable with, and the C and the ABC. Um, thing is control so you're taking mm. back control and that that's nothing to do with brexit but it just means that you're back in sort of command and that you're back in an area that you're comfortable with and i guess i guess that that's a good thing isn't it because i suppose if you're going in as a member of a charity a volunteer for a charity you're going into talking to the press um you want to you're really talking through them to the audience that you want to be talking to is that a way of looking at it so that oh, in a way you know if you're asked a random question by the press and you think that's not really the point they might not have that expertise in the world that you work in so you want to deliver a kind of a as powerful a message that kind of responds to what they're saying but is ultimately aimed at the audience right yeah oh yeah definitely sam you know it's, it's um i've always thought when i was dealing with people with especially frontline staff people with dementia and their carers and and the sort of directors of the Alzheimer's Society, I always thought that they, what they do on a day-to-day basis and the decisions that they've got to make, the difficult things they've got to deal with, mm. that's a, doing a media interview is a walk in the park compared to what they do on a an hourly basis. So I always implore them to really back themselves and back their own knowledge and their own experience. And whatever question they're asked, 
to remember that what you that your answer is going to be more important and more memorable as well. No one's really going to care that much if you don't answer a question properly. People mm-hmm. get away with it all the time. What I think listeners or viewers of TV want is just someone with a, I think you can get away with it if, you, if you're going to deliver a question, an answer that is worth waiting for. Mm-hmm. And if it's an interesting answer, jobs are good and... My one tip, a golden rule when it comes to the media is that you don't want to put people in a really uncomfortable position. You don't want to be um, parachuted into an uncomfortable position. So if you're Mm. a rookie when it comes to a novice, when it comes to doing media interviews, aim for the pre-recorded interview first. because that. And I did that loads of time at at the Alzheimer's Society. That means that if you've said something stupid, you can do what I've done with you, Sam, and say, look, can I start again? You, and once you didn't need to say to... that, Rob. It's going to get cut out. They'll never know. <laughs> oh, <laughs> once I speak from experience as well, because I once had um, a BBC journalist that made me do something five times because she oh, wow. had a soundbite in her head that she wanted me to, um, yeah. to to conjure up. And I think that's fair enough. But you know, so if in doubt, if you feel, you know, to ease your way in, if you mm. if it's your first time, Go with a pre-recorded interview and you'll remember as well that you'll get an incredible amount of support from journalists as well because they're they're there to make you sound good. They're on your side, especially if you're in the charity sector. Obviously, it's still going to be different if if it's a bad news, an extremely bad news story. But on mm. the whole, they'll be on your side and just make sure as well that, for, for example, uh, we've seen this with the Alzheimer's site this week when they've been talking about complex scientific issues. They've worked with their media people to to break things down and simplify things. So they'll be understandable to, to Joe Public. And does, I suppose when you're thinking about who to put forward for an interview, is that then something that organisations need to think about? Is there an argument, for example, of putting forward somebody that maybe has a less of a deep knowledge about aspects of the charity, but maybe can talk more um, empathically with the audience or can maybe talk more simply to the audience? Yeah, yeah, Sam, that's another really good point. And I feel as though there's been a change away from um, the way charities are operating with the media. Now, I think think the word authenticity is becoming more and more important. Mm -hmm. And I know that is the case with... um, We we help out the... um, Couple of charities in who are based in Bristol, the Wallace and Gromit Grand Appeal, and a young persons empowerment charity called Babasa. And they, the people at the top of the organisation, are increasingly putting forward their frontline staff and their volunteers because they have that authenticity that chief execs and directors, for the best with the best will in the world, just won't have. So I'm feeling, I'm finding that those. The media want real people rather than suits on their on their programs. I noticed it as well recently with um, National Trust did a big thing on um, avine flu in the on the Fine Islands, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. usually you'd think that Radio Force Today program did it's CEOs or nothing, but right. they got one of the foot soldiers, someone on the front line. She spoke to the Today program in a in a a really, really inspiring way that could only make you want to support the National Trust. So I feel as though the people on the shop floor are increasingly um, popular and attractive Mm. to to 
broadcast producers especially. So I guess my, my last question then uh, is, how is media training evolving to meet the challenges that charities and society is facing at the moment? Um, Sam, it's been really amazing this week to see uh, the Alzheimer's Society and Alzheimer's Research UK and the other various um, dementia-related charities um, making headlines all over the national media because of their drug breakthrough. It's been amazing to see how they've moved with the times in terms of the media in that they are now um, making the most of the opportunities they get on social media and they're videoing their stuff. They're doing videoed interviews where they're sort of research staff and people like that and they're directors. They're speaking, you know, they're all over Twitter. Mm-hmm. Um, so I really feel as though they've moved with the social media times in this digital age. And they're not just sort of going to rely on um, being invited into a TV studio or being on the radio. They're making things happen themselves as well. I think that's the brilliant things, brilliant thing about this digital revolution because whilst I, as an old timer no not an old timer but as old school i'm really sad about the decline of print newspapers sure yeah but the way the the exciting all the opportunities that the digital age has created is just brilliant and it's super for for the charity sector because Mm. you can make things happen yourselves but i think you've got to the same rules apply to media training for your own videos as they would do say someone was going to be on Newsnight tonight. I think you've got to prepare. You Practice makes perfect. You've got to get those key messages n- nailed. And also, and this is a crucial thing, you've got to think of the charities, have got to think about what is the purpose of the media interview as well, actually. No, ju- no point just talking about, you know, dementia as a whole. I think you've got to go on with a purpose as well. So your time is 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 use is put to good use that you make the most of your time in the media spotlight. Rob Stewart, thank you for contributing to Charity Chats. Sam, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you there to Rob Stewart for sharing his insights and expertise with us here on Charity Chats. The role of the journalist is to understand a subject and their questions may come from only knowing a small amount on that subject, with charities often at the forefront of their area of benefit and with an expertise in the topic they're speaking about, it's good to remember that when the key message doesn't chime with the question being asked, it's more important to deliver the message than it is to answer the question. We've spoken before on the podcast about what charities can do to get their message out to press and other media in the best way. When it comes to making the most of opportunities across traditional and new news platforms, one thing that seems consistent across both is to have a key message that flows from an organisationally understood mission and vision. While more platforms exist today to speak from, the attention span is perhaps shorter than it ever was. So concise, compelling and clear are the key ingredients. So thank you, dear listener, for getting this far with us. We hope you enjoyed this episode and continue to enjoy the podcast. We'd love to hear either way. It's just left for me to thank our corporate sponsors. This episode of Charity Chat has been brought to you by our platinum sponsor, Work for Good. Work for Good is a fundraising platform helping businesses raise funds for charities through their sales. The platform makes the legal agreement needed for businesses to sales fundraise quick and simple. 
saving charities time and resource and enabling them to raise more unrestricted income. Pop to workforgood.co.uk to learn more and book a free demo. Also, I'd like to thank Giant Squid Audio Lab for sponsoring our podcast kits. <clears throat> Magda Axmit for our beautiful website. Check it out at charitychat.org.uk. And of course, Forest of Fools for playing throughout the show and for playing us out right now. That's it from me. Keep on doing what you can. Speak to you soon. Cheerio. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.